Well, life is a wonderful gift uh, from first breath uh, all the way through a myriad of experiences along the way. The whole way through, life is a wonder-filled gift. But the problem is we just get one life, just one chance, one allotment of years, one history in which to live. And so given this, how can we be confident with this one life that we get to live, however far along we think we are in it, how can we be confident that we've made the most of it, that we'd be able to look back at the end of life, however long that might be, and have no regrets whatsoever, to know that we've not wasted it, not even a moment of it? Is it possible? All around us uh, we have people, including ourselves, who seek to live lives that are full, lacking nothing, But all around us, I suspect, are people experiencing the overwhelming sense that life is far from full or at least far from being totally fulfilling. Whether it be that life is short of time or short of happiness or short of relationships or security or whatever it might be, it's easy to get that feeling that we've fallen short of that mark where we'd be able to look back and say, I have lived a full life. Do you think it's possible? Do you think it's possible to get to the end of life and to say, I have lived a totally full life, full of purpose, full of joy, and not just full of days, but full of life and life to the full? What do you think a life like that would look like? What does real life, when you get to the heart of it, what's it all about? Well, a movie came out a few years ago called Touching the Void. I'm not sure if you've seen it. It's about a mountaineer by the name of Joe Simpson and he and a friend were climbing in the Andes in 1985 and he had a horrific accident. He fell down a massive hole and he'd fallen so far that his tibia drove right through his knee. And there he was at the bottom of this hole and his friend looking down and eventually his friend realised there didn't seem a way out for Joe and so had to leave him for dead. But over the next three and a half days, Simpson somehow managed, first of all, to climb his way out of this hole and then literally crawl the whole way back down the mountain. It was an amazing feat, an amazing film. And if you've seen the film, you'll remember that upon being found at the bottom, he was asked what kept him going. How did he manage to drag himself out of that hole and all the way back down the hill despite the horrendous pain that he was in, a lack of water, nothing he had with him? His answer, he said, I knew if I didn't make it back down, I was going to die alone and I didn't want to die alone, said Joe. And I reckon that's the heart of it, right there. In that quote, you catch a glimpse about what life is about. Relationship, fellowship, that's what is at the heart of things. For Joe Simpson, as he was climbing his way out of that hole and and crawling his way back down the, the hill, there was nothing worse than the feeling that he was alone in the universe at the end. And for me, that's what makes this letter of 1 John so incredible and so wonderful and so important. Because here in this short letter from the Apostle John, a letter that we begin to explore together tonight, John testifies that the very thing that makes life, life, fellowship, 
relationship, God himself has provided in the most dramatic fashion. And so here in 1 John, what we see before our eyes in just these very first four verses is that speculation into what life is all about, into how to live a full life with no regrets, well, speculation about that has ended forever. We can indeed be completely confident about things like this. Do you see why in these four verses? Simple. God has spoken the very word of life. Before our eyes, God has unveiled life itself, what it is all about. It's a great image, isn't it? In, in our world we see all sorts of things unveiled, whether it be a, a new car, the latest model, the, you know, the curtains pulled back and, and there it is. Or a new discovery, a new building, all sorts of things are unveiled. But here we're told that God has done that with life itself. And in 1 John, in these first four verses of chapter 1, we get four big things being said about this unveiling, this pulling back and revealing the very word of life. First of all, have a look in verse 2. We're told that this word of life that God has spoken, that he has revealed, makes clear the very meaning of life. It's a definitive word. You see it there, verse 2? It is the life. Not a life, not one way of living, it is the life. End of speculation. End of various opinions about what life is about, about its purpose and meaning. All understanding regarding human life, all definitions of it are qualified by God's unveiling of the life. But not only are we told the meaning of life, we're told and taken back to the very source, the very beginning of life. If you were to ask uh, the science world for, for the source of life to point you to the very beginnings of things, we'd be told and shown amazing things, I'm sure. Evidence of uh, primitive, basic versions of life, pictures of our world and of humanity in its infancy. But what God reveals here is something far more foundational. He takes us, uh, as we see in verse 1, to that which was from the beginning when none of what science would show us was even there, when the world was formless and empty, what God unveils is before even this. But not only is this word that God speaks show us the meaning of life and the source of life, it shows us the very future of life, where it is heading. Again, if you were to scan the news of the day and ask people, what's the future of life? Where's life heading? You'd get all sorts of answers, wouldn't you? whether you'd be directed to the latest medical breakthrough, life is about this. I was reading during the week, there's, there's been this huge uh, scientific research going into what we can eat and can't eat to remain healthy. And it turns out you can't eat bacon. I love bacon. Is that the future of life? No bacon. <laughs> or maybe it's to, we'd be pointed to the environmental policies, the ways to live to sustain life on this earth. And we could well believe that the future for life, as we know it, is to reduce, reuse, recycle. But what John shows us is something far more incredible and far more spectacular than that. When God reveals life and points to the future of it, he directs our eyes not to tomorrow or to the next century or even millennia from now, 
Now he shows us from everlasting to everlasting. Verse 2, he shows us eternal life. This word that he has spoken has shown us the meaning of life, the source of life, the future of life and then it also makes clear in verse 2 where this life can be found. Life is with the Father. I love that phrase. I I don't pretend for a second to be a a great Greek scholar but uh, every now and then I come across a, a phrase in Greek that is just so much more fuller than uh, the English, with the Father, pros ton patra. One of the most intimate Greek phrases there is, towards the Father. The image here is of, of life and God the Father face to face, right up close, face to face with the Father. That is where life is, with the Father in heaven. And of course, if that is where life is, real life, full life, if that's where it originated and where it is heading with the Father, well then there's a problem. Because as Ecclesiastes puts it, God the Father is in heaven and you are on earth. Life, or at least life as it's meant to be, seems out of reach. But do you hear John's testimony? He claims that this life has appeared appeared to us, he says in verse 3. You know, up till now in John's testimony, you could be excused for thinking that when he's talking about this life, that he's talking about some sort of ideal or an idea, a theory, a slogan. But looking closer, you see in verse 1, he is obviously talking about something far more tangible. John says he has heard life, seen it with his own eyes, gazed upon life, His very hands have touched life. He is a witness to life. John's not talking about some theory or ideal. This is visceral, audible, tangible, personal. And in fact, if we look even closer, he makes clear that he is talking about the one he has spent three years with, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus who says of himself in John chapter 14, I am the life, the one who was from the beginning, the very author of life itself, who had no beginning, who will have no end, who is from everlasting to everlasting and with the Father. We're told in the first couple of verses of John's Gospel. This is amazing. That which was eternally with God, out of our range, out of our view, beyond our thinking, has appeared in human history, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, God himself has stepped into human history and has stooped down to our level to bring us life that is real life, full life, joy-filled life. As Buzz Aldrin, one of the first men to walk on the moon, said, he said that man should walk on the moon is interesting, fascinating, but that God should walk upon the earth, well, that's important. John testifies that the day God incarnate was born in the flesh, the day the baby Jesus cried his first cry, was the day life incarnate was gloriously revealed. 
That which he has seen, says John, heard and touched. You see what John is saying? You can touch the eternal one. You can touch God himself, the very source of life. Embrace him. Beat him up. Torture him. Nail him up to a cross. God himself, who is life himself, came and lived among us. So what? what? What's the big deal with God doing that? I mean, as we head towards Christmas, the day where we celebrate God incarnate, this baby born, it's a question we need to ask. So what? Why is John making such a big deal of this? Why, why does it matter so much? Why does he proclaim it? Well, John proclaims it because if you understand the incarnation of the Lord Jesus clearly then it is actually possible to do what we said at the start, to live fully, to lack nothing, to live a life filled with confident joy. Confident joy. Let me ask you, are you confident? I'm not talking about uh, arrogance here, I'm talking about are you secure? When you wake up in the morning and when when you put your head on the pillow at night, are you sure, totally at ease, Is that you? Are you joyful? Increasingly, constantly, pervasively joyful? Does your heart bubble over? Is that you? Well, if not, then drink deep of these first four verses in John's letter. Let me show you two ways I think this passage shows us how we can live a life like that, a life of confident joy. The first one's quite simple. It says it's possible to live with confident joy because we can actually know what God is like. It's possible to live a life of confident joy because we can know what God is like. You know, to understand uh, the confidence I think these verses give us, you need to understand the context in which they were written. As we explore 1 John together in the coming weeks, what becomes obvious is that the Christian communities to which John writes were being infiltrated by false teachers, people who were dividing the Christian community, people who were denying the incarnation of Jesus. In chapter 2, verse 22, and again at the start of chapter 4, they make clear that they don't think God in Jesus was a man. Jesus to them seemed like a man, he appeared to be a man, but in the end he was a ghost, a phantom. Well, John writes into an era of a melting pot of theories about Jesus, an era just like ours, really. Diverse theories from within and without the Christian community. So many different ones and the the wackier they are, the more airplay they seem to get. Whether it be Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code or or someone like John Shelby Spong, a bishop in the Anglican Church's latest dopey theory, he has one about every year. This is the sort of context into which John writes. And in the midst of all this, wouldn't it be great to get some clarity as to who Jesus really is, as to what God is like? It would be great to have one of the apostles, one of those who had walked and talked with Jesus for these three years, lived with him night after night, day upon day, to hear him speak and say, this is what Jesus was like, this is what he did, this is what he said. Well, that's exactly what John is doing for us. One of the disciples who had walked and talked and touched Jesus, who saw him after he rose from the dead, 
who ate with him after he rose from the dead. And I think because of John's testimony here, we can be completely confident of what God is really like. Not because we were there, we weren't. But then a good many things in our life, even things we know about ourselves, we're poor witnesses of, aren't we? You know, I know I was born in Canberra. I don't remember it. I know who my parents are, but I don't have any evidence of it other than the fact that they tell me that they are my parents. And there's, there's many things like that, even, even things in the science world. Uh, I, I haven't done all the experiments. I wasn't in the lab. And yet others have. We weren't there. But John was. And this fisherman is our man on the scene. He is our eyewitness, our ear witness, our hand witness. And so we have first-hand evidence, reason to be confident. We know what Jesus is like and we know what God is like. The incarnation is incredible. But it is one of the great stumbling blocks in the Christian faith. But I suspect the reason it's such a stumbling block is not so much about the lack of evidence. I think it's the huge implications this evidence has. You see, John's not just telling us about the physical reality of Jesus. He's telling us about that physical reality because of the spiritual impact of that reality. Jesus is God become man. God in the flesh. The same flesh you and I have, but he is God in that flesh. And so in the same way that we can be confident of his nature, that he is flesh, we can be completely confident of his identity. He is God. But many are happy to believe in Jesus when he is nothing more than a vague spiritual idea a positive presence, a ghost, a phantom, a Halloween character. But when John tells us that God's son became a real man in a real place, dying on a real cross, when this real man exposes real sin of people like you and I and when this man gives real commands about how to live a real life here and now, well, that's where the stumbling block comes in. The truth of the incarnation means that we can be completely sure that every person in every country in every era must submit to and obey this one Jewish man from Nazareth. When God becomes a man, every other man and woman's self-rule ends. God's kingdom breaks into the human kingdom and shows us that our self-rule, our self-dependence is mere pretense. It is possible to live a life of complete confidence and complete joy because we can know what God is like. And secondly, it's possible to live a life with confident joy because we can know what life is all about. These verses give us great confidence because we can be crystal clear as we've seen of who Jesus is. And what John is showing us in these first four verses is that getting that right Jesus' nature and identity is actually of primary importance if we hope to live well, live joyful lives. How do I know this? Well, all of what we have looked at so far has been building up to what I think is one of the most amazing truths the Bible has for us. It shows us why God did stoop down to our level, why he was made flesh and why he has gone to such great lengths to show us the the impact, the implications of that. 
It shows us why John proclaims it to us tonight. Verse 3. See those two words? It gives the purpose for all of that. So that. So that you may have fellowship. God's Son became a man that we might have relationship with him. The very thing that makes life life, relationship, fellowship, God himself has provided. John captures it perfectly for us elsewhere in his Gospel in chapter 17, verse 3. He says this, Now this is life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent As John 17 goes on, it shows us that this fellowship that God provides by sending Jesus is at the heart of the universe. Right from the basement of time, the Father and the Son have had that fellowship. That's what it's all about. In fact, this fellowship is where all life comes from. Do you see what John is inviting us to in verse 3? Through the life, death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. He is inviting us to be part of that fellowship, what the Father and the Son share. Access to the Father is opened up to us. This is big. H.G. Wells, an atheist, wrote a book called The Secret Places of the Heart. And in that book there is this one scene that tells of a businessman on the verge of a nervous breakdown. And As he goes to see his doctor, his doctor tells him that the only thing that can give him peace now is a relationship that comes from knowing God. And the businessman's reply is worth quoting because I think it opens up the enormity of what John is inviting us to here. The guy says, what? To think of that up there, having fellowship with me? I would as soon think of myself cooling my throat with the Milky Way or shaking my hands with the stars. What John is calling us to is awe-inspiring. Fellowship that brings life, full life, confident, joyful life with the God who has lived forever. Well, let me finish with three implications for this promise of fellowship for those who trust Jesus. Three implications which shows us what this fellowship had, the implications it has for the way we live life. Firstly, if you are a Christian... If you have come to trust Jesus and you have come into this fellowship and you need to know that fellowship with God means that you now have the joy of intimacy with God and complete confidence that he satisfies. Have a look again at verse 3. You want to know what fellowship is all about? If you want a definition, here it is. It means being with the Father and his Son. Now don't miss how big this is. Remember the description of Jesus uh, in verse 2, with the Father, proston patra. That intimate description, face to face. Can you picture it? When I try to picture it, the thing that comes to my mind is that moment in a, in a wedding service when, when it's time for the vows and the bride and the groom turn to each other face to face and promise faithfulness to each other. Well, with God, that's where we are face to face with him. We are right there because of Jesus. Face to face with God. Face to face with life itself. And you know what? That's what life is about. That's the sum total of the Christian life. 
Do you want to know what your job is as a Christian? You might think there's a, there's a hundred tasks that you have to fulfil as a Christian. Well, here it is, to be face to face with God. That's your job. As Psalm 37 puts it, our job is to delight ourselves in the Lord. If you want to love God more, if you want to honour him more, and of course we do, we'll delight in him. That's how relationships work. You know, Liz, uh, my wife, uh, there's all sorts of things that I could do for her, all sorts of uh, jobs and tasks. I'm sure she'd be very impressed if I mowed the lawn more often than I did. All sorts of things. But what honours her most is when I say, I love being with you. And uh, Liz uh, and Jamie actually headed off to Australia on, on Thursday night and we, we dropped them off, Finn and I, at uh, the airport in Manchester and it gets to that point uh, at the, sort of the departure gate where the people who've got tickets get to go around a corner and people without them can't go any further. And uh, you know, leading up to this the Thursday night is sort of the busyness of life. You don't get to comprehend actually what's happening until it happens. And she goes around the corner and you think, no, that's a dud. That's a dud. Because I love being with her. My joy in her presence is an echo of her excellence and that's how it is with God. We are to long to be with him. And where does this longing get satisfied? Well, the most wonderful description of this fellowship we're being invited into is in Revelation 3 verse 20. Jesus says this, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Table fellowship, that's what this is about. We are being invited to sit at the table of the Lord and his son. That's what they long for, to have our hearts and our minds and our souls feast on him and with him. And you see what Jesus is saying in Revelation 3? He's saying God's word is where that happens. Whoever hears my voice, says Jesus, God sits with us from his word. Every time we come to his word, every time we hear it as as we are right now, we sit to the table with him. And again, it's important not to misunderstand how big this is. You know, as as evangelicals, we, we have a high and a faithful view of scriptures. We know the Bible is what it's all about when it comes to knowing God. But when it comes to this idea of table fellowship, we can be gluttons. We we could come to church week in, week out, go to conferences and we leave a conference after three days full. What great teaching we had. Full of knowledge, full of information. But there's a big difference here, what John is pointing us to. The the difference in my mind is, is the difference between a good meal with close friends and eating alone in a food hall at somewhere like Meadow Hall. It's very easy to become the food hall sort of Christian who who sort of gorges on the word of God with no idea that they are sitting face to face with the Lord Jesus. But we are being invited to sit at the table with him. And so every time we open the scriptures, we should long to meet with the Father and his Son. And when we come to church, we should, above all things that we're longing for as we, as we walk through the door, long to meet face to face with Jesus. As we sing the words of scripture to each other, that is what we should long for. The second implication of this fellowship that we enjoy is that fellowship with God means having the joy of shared values and the confidence that he is the way. 
You know, fellowship, as we've already seen, is more than just intellectual belief, but it's also more than just directionless intimacy. You see, the more time we spend face to face with God in His Word, the more you become one with Him in all aspects of your life. You come to share His values, His passions. You come to believe what He believes, love what He loves. You come to live for His pleasures and what pleases Him. That's what we're being invited to here. Intimacy with God pushes us on such that we find our whole way of approaching life shaped around His. We come to rejoice in His ways because we are completely confident that He is the way, the truth and the life. Let me give you an example. Being face to face with God through Jesus means that you cannot date or marry an unbeliever. To do so would be to mix two of the most intimate relationships a human can have, two relationships that can't possibly mix. You cannot have deep fellowship in the things that matter most with someone who doesn't sit face to face with the Lord Jesus, who doesn't have the same understanding or love of Jesus. They are not face to face with him. And yet Jesus is a lover who will tolerate no rivals. So let me encourage you, if you are a Christian girl and you are either contemplating or are dating an unbeliever, he might be the most wonderful, generous, kind, thoughtful guy you have ever met. Maybe more of those things than any Christian man you've ever met. He may love you and you may never have had that before. But he cannot do for you the most intimate thing a man can do for a woman. Ephesians 5, 25 to 27 says, The most intimate thing a man can do for a woman, wash her with the word. Bring her face to face with Jesus again and again and again. Can't do that. And if you are a Christian guy and you're dating an unbelieving girl, the same works in reverse. You cannot do the very thing that God ask you to do for the woman you love and so to the girls or guys in that situation let me encourage you to rejoice in the Lord, he is enough he will provide and if you're a man or a woman married to an unbeliever then know that God wants you to be his man or his woman in that situation, that place love him or her pray for them Spend lots of time face to face with Jesus and trust the transforming power of that fellowship will make Jesus beautiful to your spouse. Now the final implication uh, that we'll finish with uh, for this fellowship that we are being invited to is that fellowship with God means that you have a, uh, having the joy of a shared life and the confidence you are not alone. The joy of a shared life and confidence that you are not alone. Remember the movie Touching the Void? Joe Simpson. I don't want to die alone, he said. Well, for the Christian, there is no fear of that. None whatsoever. Because of Jesus, because of God made flesh, we are never alone. And not just at the end, all the way through, we have the complete confidence, the complete joy that we have the perfect companion for the journey. You think about what makes great friendships. You think about your closest friends over the years. What is it that makes friendships great? 
Every time I think of that, I'm reminded of a, a, a lyric from a, an Australian band where he's speaking of his close friend and he says, he remembers what I remember. Instant history. That's our joy with God. He does life with us. He's with us the moment we come to trust Jesus. He is there through life's great moments and he is there in the deepest sadness. From the birth of a child to the loss of one, from the start of a friendship to the end of one, from the start of a career to that final day, no matter what, death, life, present, future, danger, trouble, hardship, lack, all of it, he is with us and he will never leave us or forsake us. To know that, to know him who makes that reality is to know a life of confident joy. I love that word, joy. It's hard uh, not to say it without thinking of another word, exuberance. I love the word exuberance because you can't say it without doing it, or I can't anyway, without doing that. But every time I think of those sort of words, joy and exuberance, I think of children. That's where you see this sort of trait. Childish joy, childish exuberance. And I love seeing it in my own children. There comes that point at the end of the day where I come back into the house and uh, I'm sort of lying down in that lounge room and the, the kids know I'm there and they come charging in and you hear these giggles and uh, all of a sudden you get this crash tackle. And uh, they've started lately, I don't know why they do this, they go into the kitchen they get wooden spoons and start building me over the head with it. It gives them great joy. <laughs> but we grow out of that, don't we? <laughs> I hope so. Sometime, somewhere in the, in the teenage years, we, we, we get uh, too mature and we try to find that, that childish joy in a hundred artificial ways along the way to get it back again, but it's gone. We're adults now. We know too much. Or could it be that we know too little? Could it be that we're far too easily moved from that childish joy to sensible adult life? Well, for the Christian, that's not to be our life. We are to rejoice, always. Childish joy uh, doesn't work because it can't hold up under the reality of adult life. But the news that Christ came into this world so that we may have fellowship with him, the news that he longs to be face to face with us, to lead us in his ways, 